Hi and welcome to episode 36 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger and my guest today is Paul Ryan. Paul has had a huge year. Three solo shows across Australia with Nanda Hobbs, Edwina Corlett and James Macon Galleries, as well as work being shown with all three at Sydney Contemporary. Over the years, he's had over 20 solo shows and he's won numerous art prizes. He's been shortlisted many other times, 13 times in the Archibald, and on two occasions he was a finalist in all three Archibald Wynn and Sulman prizes in the Art Gallery of New South Wales in the one year. He liberally applies paint mainly with a palette knife to produce stunning portraits, figures and landscapes. I recorded this interview in Paul's studio in Thoreau, a coastal oasis south of Sydney, where his paintings share space with his surfboards. And it's this landscape with the backdrop of a dramatic escarpment that Paul paints. But he often paints it through the lens of Australian colonial history, which has been inspired by literature and music. But this subject has not been without controversy. In 2010, his show No Country for Dreaming was briefly shut down after negative reactions within some parts of the Aboriginal community, and we talk about that in this episode. We also talk about the Archibald and some of his sitters, and he also talks movingly about his adoption as a child and how that's impacted his life and art. The time flew by and before I knew it, I was on my way back to Sydney, but this time I took Paul's advice and took the coastal road rather than the motorway and I could see why he returns to painting this place again and again. All the paintings we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Paul where he grew up. I was born in Auckland in New Zealand. All right. Uh, And then the whole family moved to Wollongong at the age of eight. Uh, because my dad was a university lecturer and he was asked to come and help establish an economics department at Wollongong Uni. So yeah. he's, a, he's an academic. He's an academic. Um, but, and because he's an academic too, there would be sabbaticals every so often. So I, I also went to school in America and the UK, as well as New Zealand and Australia. So I had quite a oh, diverse right. schooling, actually. Do you remember back then, like, sort of anything about um, art? Like as a kid? No, there was not much at all about art. No, I mean, just it was really just life memories at, at that age. We didn't have re- any books on art in the house. We didn't, I don't think, have original art in the house. My mum came from a, a farming, a dairy farming background, and dad, dad came from a huge family of 11 kids and studied accountancy, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but our art eventually did creep into the family and, um, somehow, I suppose, I suppose with me. Right, so you were the first one, really. I think so. To take an interest. Yeah. And when did that start? Like at school? Well, I, I, it always it was always there. Whenever there was a, a rainy day or something, I was happy to sit down just with some pencils and chalk or crayons and, and do drawings. Oh, and uh, right. so it was something that was it was innate. It was just, it was born into me, I think. So I take it you then did art at high school. I did art at high school, and it it actually forced me to drop out of high school because the high school I was at, St Paul's in Balambi, had no art after, in, in, in the HSC years. I dropped out of year 11 and went to TAFE, Wollongong TAFE, and started an art course there at the age of 16, and that was my first sort of formal training in art. Oh, so you knew at that point that that was your thing? was to I do. did know that that was what I wanted to do, yeah. But I, did, I mucked around and I didn't finish the course, and then I spent four years on the dole just, just mm-hmm. surfing and living with a bunch of other surfers. 
and that was fun too. But after four years, I, I sort of realised that, that that there was a bit of a dead end, and it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't enough. Mm. When I finally decided to go to Wollongong Uni, I had to submit a portfolio, and I got knocked back the first time because I think the work was terrible. <laughs> and they said, "Oh, I don't want him." But anyway, I, I kind of went back begging, and they did eventually let me in. <laughs> so that was what were you about twenty two or something? I was twenty two. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. and I got in on the, in the special admissions test, which is a three-hour exam. I literally turned up in going out clothes. I hadn't been home from the night before <laughs> and sat there and just did this, this, this test, which I thought was pretty easy. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that was a, an arts de- like an art degree? Yeah, that was an art degree, yeah. And so were you doing painting then? Uh, yeah, so I majored in painting and did sculpture and oh. printmaking course and a bunch of other different things, lots of drawing. And all the history and theory, which I wasn't that much of a fan of, to be honest, but I had to do it. Yeah. Did you like the other stuff? Um, well, it took me five years to finish a three-year degree. <laughs> I dropped out of that for a year as well. <laughs> <laughs> My poor parents thought I'd never finish anything. And so, yeah. So I presume you were surfing a lot in that. I was surfing a lot too. Yeah. and yeah. Yeah, Which yeah. has been a big thing in your life. It's obviously. been a big thing in my life. And I'm still 22 and so, you know, you're, you're just partying and having a great time. But I was focused on the, on the stuff I wanted to do. Mm. I was HDs across the board. And then I was, I was getting HDs and then failures. So mm. there was a really sort of quite yeah. a sort of split personality looking scorecard. <laughs> yeah, so it was more that, so your practical stuff was obviously Yeah, I threw up. myself into that. Yeah. I just was like, right, this, I knew what I wanted to do. I'd had all those years of just stuffing around and it was like this sort of pulling back a rubber band until it's at a, you know, tension, almost breaking point, then letting it go. And I was just, I was into it and I was loving it mm-hmm. and I would stay back. And back then the uni students, all we all had a little space and, the, and we could stay almost as long as we want. A, lot, a bunch of us would stay there till 11 o'clock at night painting in the studios. Oh, really? Yeah, so it was... It and what were you painting time. at uni? Like, what sort of thing? Were you just experimenting? With a lot of experimentation. Yeah. And, and I st- did my very first paintings of the human figure, which I've been sort of fascinated with ever since. Mm. And the landscape of the, of the Illawarra, particularly mm. the northern Illawarra, uh, which I'd, I'd moved to Thoreau by then. I was living in Thoreau and surfing in Thoreau and looking at that landscape every time I'm painting, the escarpment and all the headlands and the ocean, of course. So after, what was the, what was the sort of um, next step that most people did after uni? Like, was, it, was the idea to try and get representation in a gallery? I think in a way, for many people, that's the dream. They go into, you know, a lot of people go to art school and that's in their head. This is sort of loose idea that they'll do that and they'll get an exhibition and then they'll have a gallery. Of course, for many, that never turns out that way and a lot end up going and doing a bit of extra study to be able to teach Mm. Or, or, or go into other areas. But for me, I got lucky. I, I, I won an art prize, the very first art prize I entered, the Faber-Castell Drawing Prize. I won the amateur division of that. And Elizabeth Cummings actually won the professional um, oh, right. part of that the year I, I was in that. And so the very first thing I entered, I won. And so it gave me this false sense of, oh, gee, this is all right. <laughs> <laughs> it probably wasn't false. Yeah. But, it was, but it gave you confidence to sort of feel like, because mm. I was wondering about that because I, I was looking at your, you know, the history of your career. And I saw that you got into the Sydney galleries pretty early after finishing your degree. Yeah. Well, on the back of winning that prize, a small gallery in Balmain right. took me on and then gave me a show, which turned, which turned into a sellout show and... So I did have a wonderful start, which was good. But then I, it drifted away a bit. I got back into smoking pot a bit too heavily for a while and kind of lost track of where I was going, which was a bit stupid. But 
Why, why, why did you, do you think that happened? Was it the surfing culture, do you think? Part of that, I don't know. Just, there was, I just think I wasn't very good at having a structure, any sort of structure in my life. Um, mm. And it wasn't until I met my wife, Tanti, and we had our first child, and I was 35 by then. So a lot of water had gone under the bridge that it was I like, okay, this is time to get serious now. You've got a family, and if you don't make this art thing work, you're going to have to get some other sort of job. Yeah, right. And so I, again, I knuckled down again like I had at the age of 22, and, and, uh, and it's been a steady progression since, hard work and exhibitions and art prizes. And yeah, and so how, so how did you get... So I suppose you still had... Um, contacts in the sort of I Sydney had contacts scene. and connections yeah yeah, yeah yeah and but pretty loose ones and I was I really had to build up again from scratch mm. to be honest with you so I mm. presume it's it, your work just uh, spoke for you in a way I, th- I think I think the work had to yeah and, mm. and I had to work very hard to get the work up to speed to be good enough to be accepted so did you find that with after that gap your work had suffered as a result of that did you have to then get your technique back up to scratch again. Yeah, not so much technique, more um, what am I going to paint? What, what am I painting about? What am I painting and, and you know, what, what's important to me? And how did you get to find to, that? Um, I suppose I, it came straight back to the landscape and the, that landscape's always been important to me. And, um, and I'd been thinking, I think, for quite a while too about Australian history, about colonisation, about who we are as a people. Mm. And, you know, through certain things I'd been reading as well, Thomas Keneally's Commonwealth of Thieves and um, Richard Flanagan's book Wanting, uh, mm. which is an amazing, amazing book about this young Aboriginal girl who's adopted by the Franklins, the Governor Franklin in Tasmania. Mm. Through reading those books, I, it started giving me a, an, an in to what I might do with my painting. I thought, this is, this is very fertile ground for painting. And it's, I think it's something I can really get my teeth into. Yeah. What, what, was it, what was it about those stories that attracted you the most, do you think? Um, yeah, I think, it, well, I think what it is is because in school we were just given this very sort of skeleton sort of education of the, of, of the history, you know. Mm. British came here, we settled, we made the place great, and um, that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> Ten, apparently yeah. there were a few Aborigines involved as well and that was about all we knew. I never saw any Aboriginal people when I was a kid. Mm. All the local Aborigines had been pushed so far to the margins that they weren't even visible. I'd never seen. I didn't know that even any existed in this area. Um, and then these books come out and these rich, incredible stories start coming out and fascinating, brilliant stories about, about the first Australians and about some of the amazing people that came and some of the terrible people that came here. And I thought, this hasn't been painted about a lot, especially uh, from the white perspective. I suppose I have to consider myself white. Um, there's some amazing artwork that's been coming out in recent years by indigenous, urban indigenous, indigenous artists, Tony Albert to, to name but one. Yeah. And I think it's important that, um, that white Australian artists too, non-indigenous artists I suppose is a better term, should be painting that as well mm. from a slightly different perspective. Mm. And that's, yeah. I suppose... I suppose that um, I was going to get into this a bit later, but now that we've sort of started talking about it, because um, it's a very political sort of thing that you're, you're sort of attempting to tackle, isn't it? And you, you can't paint it without it being political. No. no. So, so it's, it's sort of a bit fraught in lots of ways. Absolutely, and I learned that the hard way with this exhibition at Wollongong Gallery that caused, right. caused a bit of a kerfuffle yeah. and was closed down for an afternoon because I, I inadvertently upset 
elements of the local indigenous yeah, community. Well, I'll just give a bit of background for that. It was in 2010, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and it was a show called No Country for Dreaming. Yeah. Um, exhibition with dealt with um, that with those themes that you'd been dealing with a long time for a long time, which was about colonisation and and yeah. sort of um, what happened between the settlers and the Aboriginal people. But there were a couple of paintings that were did did sort of strike a nerve within some people in the Aboriginal community, and that yeah. was including like a painting which was um, of um, an Aboriginal man's body hanging from a tree, and and the title was called "The Local Boys Just Seemed to Hang About All Day." Yeah. Was was the was it more that the title they were concerned about, or was it even if the painting didn't have that title that you weren't entitled to paint? Uh, well, it was both. It was it was the visual imagery of dead Aboriginal people, and it was some of the titles, which I will admit were pretty hardcore. But they, I was I was trying to use irony and dark humour. Um, and when I tried to explain that to some people, they thought this is not a funny situation. How dare you make light of it by using humour? But it's it's much more complicated than that. I, you know, I, I think that you, you can lead people in with humour and then smack them around the face a bit with the reality of the paintings. Um, you know, a lot of the books I've been reading, particularly um, Cormac McCarthy's book, um, Blood Meridian, which talked about this group of vigilantes in, in America who were paid to go around and kill the Native American Indians, used the word nigger quite liberally through that book. And this very brutal, brutal, but beautifully written about um, um, these massacres that happened in America. And mm. I thought, I, I can I can actually do paintings that are like that. Use very visceral, brutal imagery, mm. and not shy away from difficult language and and complicated, difficult titles. And I think that makes the works powerful. So, did you find you censored yourself afterwards? Like after that? I, I, I have a little bit. I mean, although lately I've been doing some more difficult things again, but um, public galleries and private galleries both are often very reticent to hang some of the more difficult stuff and and I can understand because I mean it is a complicated situation and, and you know in the intervening years since that I I think I've become a little bit more sensitive towards well about what I'm doing I you know clearly I'm a white Australian and so I am I've, I've been born into privilege a privilege that indigenous Australians don't have mm. and and they've had to fight for and for me it's just taken as a given mm. and um, and so I, I, I suppose I have to understand that if you're indigenous and you see this work coming from someone who who was seen in their eyes to be privileged and to have everything laid out on a platter almost for them that it's not fair yeah um, so well, I suppose it it's interesting, isn't it, that the artist's background is relevant to, to the work in those situations? Yeah, well, mine is. Because I was adopted and because I came to Australia as an immigrant, I actually already felt like an outsider myself in many ways. Mm. And, and until the age of 25, I didn't know what my heritage was, and I thought, you know, maybe I am part Indigenous. It, it's mm. a possibility. It could have been. Yeah. And so, interestingly, that meant that I viewed the world and people, everyone, as this well, they were all potential ancestors. Everyone's equal, mm. and I think, and I felt because I'd had that sort of an upbringing, oh, that that start in life, that I could, I could have be um, empathetic towards the Indigenous Australians mm. because I had also um, grown up with, you know, like we all do. No one's mm. life's perfect. We're all, you know, it's not like all whites are this and all blacks are that, or all, all Aborigines are this, or all yeah. Chinese are that. It's it's not that at all. 
we, we all have our own personal stories and, um, and, and I, I have never felt in a position of power, to be honest, even if that's how I'm seen by some members of the Indigenous community. Mm. I've had to fight for everything mm. I've got. Um, can we move on to your presence in the Art Gallery of New South Wales over the years? <laughs> because yeah. you've, been, you've been hung in the Art Gallery of New South Wales many, many times in, in um, the Archibald, the Win and the Sulman Prizes. Um, I just wanted to start off talking about your portraits and um, a very amazing collection of paintings, which was from the 2015 Archibald Prize and which I'm sure many people listening to this podcast would have seen and remember. And that is your entry, which was 13 Noahs the actor Noah Taylor, who is a famous Australian actor. Yeah. And um, that was an amazing collection of paintings just on a lot of different found objects. Like there was ping pong bats and like previous paintings that you painted. How did that come about? Such an interesting work. Yeah, well, I mean, the initial intention hadn't been for that to be my entry for the Archibald, but what I was doing was I was doing a lot of preparatory paintings Leading, I'm um, trying to work out how I'm going to paint him for that year's Archibald. And I just started painting on found objects, things from junk shops, old paintings and prints and whatever. And I was painting them and just hanging them at random on my studio wall. And one day I just looked at that and went, oh my God, that's, that can be my Archibald entry. So I just started moving them around oh, and yeah. taking a few out and putting new ones in and, and then went, bang, that's it. And that's how that particular entry came about. And that hasn't stopped, has it? Because you, you've continued to, to paint him on other sort of found objects. And in fact, you won a, um, a portrait prize last year. Oh, no, actually, 2015, the Hereford yeah. Hardwood Portrait Prize with your painting Blue Mountains, Noah. And yeah. that was of Noah, like, on, on a sort of painting of, of the Blue Mountains. And you've also done lots of others, like, sort of his face superimposed on, like, the Last Supper. Yeah, I mean, you know... We've grown up watching Noah on the screen and he's always been someone with this very interesting face. A wonderful face. Yeah, um, true. Similar to Nick Cave in a way, which yeah. is just there's this very sort of pixie-ish sort of nose and um, very distinctive. And so for me, it's really great to work with a subject who has a distinctive face because, I don't know, it just gives you, it gives you a lead into getting a good portrait. And mm. I became a bit obsessed with painting his face and just painted it over and over again. Well, we're actually in your studio now, and there's lots of Noahs here. Mm, he's, still, he's still hanging around. <laughs> he's still hanging around. And, um, yeah, there's one there with... So that's Mother Mary, is it? Or Mary... That's Virgin, the Virgin oh, the Mary. The Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary, like this antique sort of, yeah, picture of her, print it's, of her, really, isn't it? It's like the sort of prints that I grew up seeing in my parents' house and in all my, in my grandparents' house and all my... Catholic relatives house in New Zealand when I was a kid but everyone's house had these pictures of Mary and Jesus they were ubiquitous they were part of the scenery so so you don't feel uncomfortable doing that no not painting at all painting over religious no not picture? at all no. no maybe I feel I'm allowed to because I'm a Catholic I've, yes. I've been baptized I've been, <laughs> I've been confirmed I've been an altar boy for God's sake I'm it doesn't get more religious than that. Yeah, and so you're entitled to... It's funny, isn't it, what painters feel like they're entitled... What subject they're entitled to paint, Yeah, you know? oh, but I find this subject fascinating, what we are, and, I, and it's become quite a sort of a big thing in the literary world, what people are entitled to write about as well. 
Mm. Are they entitled to write from a different gender? Are they entitled to write about a different religion or culture if they're not from there? Mm. And it's quite a hot topic. It's mm. and um, and also appropriation of indigenous imagery. Um, that's you know that's seen as a huge no-no in this country, and um, understandably it is. And uh, so it's. I'm fascinated with that. I like the idea of pushing the boundaries a bit and mm. seeing. I like to poke the bee's nest. What's going to happen? <laughs> so, you, so you're sort of up for it in a way? Like I am you, sort of. A, I think there's a little a bit of me is a bit up for it in a way, actually. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That, I mean, I think because I think we're such a damn conservative culture here mm. and it needs shaking up a bit sometimes. Uh, so, yeah, another project I was really interested in and I probably you know, interested also in the subject was the um, Adam Cullen portrait yeah, yeah. Uh, from 2012 because when you painted him, that was around the time that he had those, um, you know, problems with, you know, the, the police, with the law, you know, mm. had the charges against him, those uh, those firearms and yeah. driving charges and everything. Um, and I think he passed away, short, you know, not, not long, long after not the long Archibald. After. yeah. What was, how did you meet him? Like, how, what, what was your connection with him? I suppose we'd cross paths a little bit through the Archibald over the years. Um, and then I just managed to get in contact with him and say that I wanted to paint him. I mean, I, I think I was fascinated by this self-destructive persona that was him, you know. And it, mm. was, it was more than a persona. It really just, that was him. He was self-destructive. Yeah, um, he sounds like a really complex sort of person. Very yeah. complex, yeah. Like actually, had, I haven't yeah. mentioned he's actually an art for people from not from Australia who might not have heard of him. He's a he's an artist, and he won the Archibald, and he was a very talented artist. Mm. Um, and what and what um, what was that experience like? Because I noticed that you mentioned in relation to that painting that when you visited him, he was depressed over that the yeah. uh, those charges. What what was that sitting like? There were two, two major sittings, and the first one he was very unwell, looked very unwell. I think he'd just come out of hospital, and, mm. and, and we had to take him to the hospital to get his methadone prescription and stuff, and he was drinking at the same time and smoking, chain smoking. Right. The second time he looked a little bit better, um, and he was quite open the second time and much more talkative, and we actually made some artworks together. Look, there's one up here. He, he, did the, he did the pen drawing and I did the little bit with some crayons. Oh, so it's like a cowboy? Is yeah, it's it? like a cowboy with an axe over his shoulder and a gun in his hand. Oh, it says Cullen Bean Feuden. And that's where the title for the painting came from, did it? Your Archibald painting? Yeah, from that. So I, I told him that I liked the idea of using, putting a gun in there somewhere in the painting. And so I painted him as this sort of American hillbilly with, sort of a, with a big cowboy hat yeah. and his gun and his, his bib and brace overalls. And, um, yeah, been feuding. So he's, like, been feuding with the law. He's, he's literally been feuding with himself his whole life. Mm. That's what the painting was about, that he'd been feuding with himself. Mm. And um, if you look closely at the painting in, I entered in the Archibald, at the end of the gun barrel, there's a little bit of blood just dripping out of the very end of the gun barrel. But mm. you, it's not something you notice on first inspection. But, yeah. but he was a very... It, it was quite a sad character. It was, it was sad. that, yeah. And I, I kind of knew that he was going to die soon. You could just sense it, that he... There was no way that, you know, his body was literally shutting down yeah. from the abuse, the years of drugs, heroin and mm. drinking and smoking and just doing crazy shit. You know, like he'd go out to um, people who'd go camping with him and for fun he'd throw bullets in the fire and stuff. So, 
Yeah, yeah, very destructive for Very destructive. There's a book, you know, there's there's books written about him and stuff. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting subject to... um, Mm. So are you sort of drawn to more complex sort of characters in a way when you're painting somebody? Well, I I think in a way I'm drawn to characters that you can get your teeth into as an artist, you know, that there's more to them, I mean, more to them than just what they look like, but there's their whole life story as well. Mm. And so he was certainly one of those characters. Oh, yeah, definitely. So for me, I like to paint people who are visually interesting, have an amazing story of their life, and are people that I admire their work. That, you know, that really helps me. Can we move on to uh, another major thing that you're known for, and that is your landscape painting? Uh, you've been painting this landscape here where you live for over 20 years. I mean, we were talking about that before. Yeah. And a beautiful example of that is your prize-winning painting in the Paddington Art Prize in 2010. The beautiful title, Not a Sound Out of the Hills, No More Than Smoke. And that was just a, it was a beautiful painting with the ocean in the foreground and then yeah. the, the sort of beautiful trees, dark, sort of dark tones, you yeah. know, and the sort of... Was the escarpment in the background? It's the escarpment, yeah. it's the forest here, it's the ocean, and and there's just this sort of column of smoke drifting silently out of the forest. And to me, it's really based on... The idea is that there's a cook in the first fleet sailing past this coast, and they couldn't stop it because the seas were stormy, apparently, but they would have seen smoke coming out and they would have known there's, there's, hum, there's there are humans there, there's people there, there's, mm. there's something there, but... But if it, you can only see smoke, you can, you know, you can just imagine their imaginations running wild. What is going on in there? And I love that idea that all you can see is the smoke. And, and, um, and the title comes actually also from Cormac McCarthy. It's out of his book, Blood Meridian. And his, his um, written descriptions of landscape are just stunning. And that line is a perfect example of probably the best description of silence I've ever read. You know, mm-hmm. not a sound out of the hills no more than smoke. Mm. I mean, that to me just paints the most beautiful image of, of perfect silence. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm, I'm really quite bad at stealing from writers and musicians <laughs> their very choicest lines and making them my own. <laughs> well, that one's a beautiful one. And that, that work, there had been a few with that title and that, that imagery, is the very last work I painted for my exhibition, No Country for Dreaming. So after all the paintings with the figures and the violence and the death, the very last painting was just this landscape with just smoke coming out. And it was like a lot of people said, I think that's the best painting in the show. And I said, yeah, but I couldn't have done that if I hadn't done all the other works leading up to that. And so that's, that's to me, that's a fascinating that that's, that's what the life of a painter is. You do all this work and sometimes there's something right at the end. Mm. of all that work that you could not have done without the tens of years of work mm. that you've done the many thousands of hours of painting you've done to lead up to get to that point. Yeah, exactly. A lot of yours, and even in these works at Nanda Hobbs that were just um, in Nanda Hobbs' new, new space in Chippendale, you're really interested, obviously, in the, that colonial, uh, those costumes, those, those uniforms of the lieutenants and the yeah. officers, um, that you know, those blue coats and the white pants and that sort of thing. What, what is it that attracts you to those sort of figures? I think it's a little bit of 18th century colonial uniform porn for me. <laughs> 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 I just, I don't know, I just, I just love those, the colours, the shapes. Um, 
I love what it speaks about, you know, yeah. um, and it's just, it's fun to paint it and it works perfectly with the thick palette knife painting that I do. Yes, it does. Well, yeah. because you can get those sweeps yeah, of colour. Yeah, you can make it happen in a very short time with big blocks of colour and, and you can change things if it's not working very quickly, add more slabs of paint onto to make the painting work. So I can sort of manhandle it in a way, wrestle it into shape yeah, with the right. palette knife. And, uh, and, and like all my paintings, there's, there's a sense of structure there, but there's so much opportunity for happy accident. And it's all about, I kind of, it's kind of like corralling happy accidents the way I paint. I've learned all these different techniques over the years by, you know, painting so many hundreds or how many thousands of paintings. Once I've got the structure drawn onto the canvas, that's kind of the, the superstructure of the painting. Yeah. But once that's on, anything can happen with the way the paint actually goes on. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very open to letting the paint do a bit of the talking and telling me where the painting's going. And in the end, that's what happens is you start painting and then the painting tells you where it needs to go next. Do you scrape off at all if you make a mistake, do you find? Or do you try have to get to. it right the first I try, time? I love to get it right first time. And yeah, so it's this, it's this bizarre combination between knowing exactly what shape and colour that needs to be, but at the same time being confident enough to let the paint land in its own way um, so that it's not perfectly shaped or formed. Um, it, it, it's an instinctual thing, I think, with colour and shape and tone. And you have an instinct, as you're mixing it on the palette, you go, oh, that's it right there now. As you're mixing back and forth and different colours are coming in, you sort of instinctually know that's what I want. And you go and pick it up, put it down, splat, stand back, look at it, go, yes, happy with that, then go and do the next bit. So the tone must be the most important thing in a Well, way. tones are, I mean, I'm a tonal painter, and, yeah, tone is, is very, very important to, to getting those things right. But, you know, shape, just if you're only going to paint the dog with 10 strokes or 15 strokes, you have to have the drawing really marked out and worked out so that when you stand back, it looks, yes, that's a beagle mm. or that's a boxer or... Yep, that's yep, a Doberman. Yep. You have to get those shapes right. Well, and also I noticed that you'd get, with your palette knife, like there's some great effects that you get where you've sort of pulled the palette. It looks like you've pulled the palette knife off quickly and the paint sort of sucked off. Points out, yeah. <laughs> Points yeah. out. Yeah. It's great. I mean, that's now that's a, an accident. I mean, you can't, you can't design that, can you? Well, I think the first time it happened, it was an accident. And, and now I use that. That's one of my little serendipitous techniques that I corral is yeah. I'll pull off and see what happens and see where the, where the paint stops. And um, does it have to be quite, it has to be, I mean, you've got to get the texture or the consistency right of the paint for it to be able yeah. to do that. Well, I mean, all the paint I use, I use two different brands, Art Spectrum and um, Old Holland. They're beautiful paints. They're very thick, buttery paints. Mm. So they've just got built-in beautiful texture. I don't add any medium or any anything to the paint Right. straight out of the tin or the yeah. tube. And I just want to also talk about um, a collaboration you you um, have been involved in with Bill Callahan, which is a, he's a Texas a Texan singer yeah. and songwriter, I think. He was recently in uh, performed at Vivid at the Sydney Opera House, and he had this amazing time lapse, uh, huge screen behind him of your. Of the progress of one of your paintings of yeah. Noah Taylor. Yeah. How did that that sort of collaboration come about? Well, it's it came about because of some friends of mine started making a documentary about me about five years ago, which still not finished, and 
Probably never will be, but it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really matter. And so I thought, well, for this film, we need to use the music that I listen to. So I sent emails off to the various people I listen to, and I got a nice email back from Drag City, who represent him in America, saying, yes, I just said, look, we'd love to use an image, we've got no money. And I said, I'd, I'd happily give Bill a painting as payment. And they basically said, look, if you do a painting based on the landscape of West Texas and Bill likes it, he may use it for something and you can use the songs. So I, I went on the internet and I found this amazing place called Mule Ears Peak, which is in this um, national park in West Texas. And it's basically a mountain that looks like the ears of a mule. Oh, yeah. And so I did a painting of it, sent it over to him, and Bill loved it. And it was used on the cover of that album, Apocalypse, which was just the most amazing album. I mean, I was just beside wow. myself with, with joy that he... He must have loved it. Oh, and it and I think you've since painted another two album covers for I've it. done another two since, yeah. And then when he came to Vivid that year, they contacted me and said, would you be interested in having your works up on screen? I was like, oh, yeah, of course I would. <laughs> and Bill wanted some time lapse, so... My friend Ashley Frost, who's been filming me for the other thing, he helped me do the time lapse. But that, that, those concerts were amazing. They went for three hours each, and I, I went to both of them, and it was just the most amazing three hours because, I, I mean, I'm just in awe of what he does as a musician. Yeah, I saw it on YouTube too. It yeah. looks he's amazing. It's but amazing. also it, it does add a lot having that visual art behind him. Yeah, and that, that's, that's so true. It enhances the whole experience. It's yeah. When you have these two art forms together it works doesn't it yeah and brilliant. An, another friend of mine richard tonietti who's the you know he, heads up the australian chamber orchestra he's mm. he's well known for putting the two together mm. and he works with john frank a great filmmaker and surfing friend of his and they've done ones on this on the ocean and it's a great excuse just to go out and go surfing and take footage <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, stuff exactly. but it's this something happens and i mean that's what film is film is you know, images and sound put together, and we are transformed by that. We're, totally. We're, we're taken away somewhere. Oh, totally. And it's brilliant. Yeah, music is incredible. I mean, I've, I've read also that music is a huge thing for you in, when you're working. It is. It's, it's massively important. And so, you know, I listen to, you know, listening to Bill's music, which has this beautiful, dark, melancholy feel to it, just fits perfectly with the way I feel about this landscape and how I want to paint this landscape. Mm. So I would listen to his music while I'm painting the landscape. And again, I've stolen, you know, these lyrics like, um, beneath the pines, the sun never shines, and we shiver when the, when the north wind blows. Well, I just changed that to south wind because we're in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> but yeah. you just hear that line. And to me, that, you know, all of a sudden, paintings are painting themselves in my head, just listening to that one beautiful line. Mm. So, I mean, it's... It, the greatest thing about that collaboration with Bill was that there was this symbiotic relationship, you know, that I had been using his music to help my paintings and then he wanted to use my paintings in his concert and on his album cover to help, yeah. help you know, with the message that his music's sort of um, is bringing across to the audience. So That's me, a rare thing. I would imagine yeah. that's a rare thing to get that yeah. equality, you know, with I, two artists. There it is. I was so lucky and so many of my friends, artist friends, go, how the hell did you get that gig? And it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, me and Bill. <laughs> 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 we get back a long way. <laughs> oh, no, it's perfect. So, so it's what good. is it, when you were saying that that melancholy sort of music suits your work, what is it about your work that you think is melancholy or that, that is triggering that in you? Or? I, I'm not entirely sure, but... There's a wonderful word, um, it's a Portuguese word, and um, it's, my pronunciation's terrible, but it's saudade, 
or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And there's even a form of music over in Brazil called Saudade music. And anyway, so what it means, it's a sort of melancholy, but it, it's a sadness brought on for a longing for something lost, but an, un, an unknown something. It's not a really well-defined, but you have, it's this feeling you get when there's something. And maybe as an adopted person, maybe I relate to that because I've grown up my whole life ha having been physically removed from my, from my biological mother. And they, they say that when you are all adopted babies, is, it's quite a powerful experience. It's called the primal wound because when you are taken from your biological mother at birth, that is your whole universe, your whole world. You know, there's this chemical. It's a chemical connection that's so powerful and that is kind of wrenched apart and you're put in a crib and fed out of a bottle and not having touch and all of that stuff. Yes, and yes. so, And so, you know, I mean, I, I think I've been affected by it and I've had brothers and sisters who have certainly been affected by it as well, even though we were brought up in the most loving family you can imagine. Mm. But I think all adoptive people have this, 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 um, this damage that's done very early on. And maybe that's why I'm attracted to melancholic music and melancholic mm. artworks. And, um, and I don't know, I like that feeling. <laughs> I must I'm, be twisted. It's sort of a like lot a bittersweet type it's thing, a, it's isn't a, it? It is. It's bittersweet. And, you know, yeah. I think we all love, and we, that's why we love to go and see films and have a bit of a tear sometimes. We like to be pushed into those emotional places. Yes. That, that, that feeling of yearning does have that quality mm. to it, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, it's an enjoyable, it's a nice feeling, and it mm. makes you feel connected more to, to humanity in a way. Mm. And, and I, it's amazing how music can pull that out straight it, away. It really does, doesn't isn't it? Isn't it incredible? Yeah, yeah. And so, with you, can you? Would you have a routine like during the day? Pretty like... much, yeah. I mean, my eldest son's just finished high school, but my younger daughter's still at school. So every morning we wake up, and then my wife and I make a pot of tea, and we sit there and we just drink the pot of tea. That's oh. the start of the day. Yeah. What? The, all of you? No, I just well, the kids are still in bed, but oh, just my wife and I. Right. And then I'll put on the morning news on the ABC and see what's happening in the world, and <laughs> have mm. a pot of tea. Then we get the kids off to school, then I go surfing, and then I come to the studio and paint. So would you go surfing most days? Most days, yeah. Mm. I try to go as often as possible, and right. it's the only form of exercise I can stand, because it doesn't seem like exercise. It's so much more of an exercise, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a whole thing. Yeah, well, you're not far from the beach here, which is... No, happy. that's right, close to the beach. Yeah. And uh, it keeps me fit, it keeps me connected to nature. Mm. You cannot come out of the ocean and not feel chilled and feel fantastic. Mm. And you get all those endorphins, so it's the best natural drug you can imagine. And then I come here and I'm ready to, you know, get stuck into some painting. Yeah, right. And that's the day, really. And would you have something set up from the night before, like ready to go, like you know what you're going to start on today? Sometimes. I, it's nice if I do. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of walking in <laughs> blank, oh my God, what am I going to do today? Um, but, you know, most, most works are part of a whole series. And so they often, one leads to the other, leads to another yeah. And um, it's not like you're starting blind every day. You've, you've got an idea where you're going, where you've come from. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not always easy. And every time you come in here, right, got to paint the best painting I've ever done today. How mm. hard can that be? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Paul, for having me here today. It's, it's just been a great experience being here and seeing it all. And um, good luck with your next show. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. <laughs> 
you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Ryan. His next show is in February 2018 at Edwina Corlett Gallery in Brisbane, so put that in your diary. I also took some video on my iPhone of Paul in his studio, which will be up on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel in the next couple of weeks. I'll let you know on the website and on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter when that's online. To get to the videos, just search Talking With Painters playlist on YouTube. Also, don't forget you can subscribe to the show through your podcast app or on iTunes or however else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. Sometimes a painting's working from the word go and every stroke is right and it, and it, it looks like a beautiful paint. Mm-hmm. The way the colours and tones work together, the shapes of the paint... And you can see that there's an easiness and a freshness to it. Um, but then there are other paintings, you can see they're forced and they are tight and they're not, they're just not art. You know, they, they really are. It's about trying to make art as well. And you don't, it's hard to define what art is, but mm. you know it when you see it. And I, and I know with my work, I know it when I see it and I know it when I don't see it. Mm.